All right, before we get into today's lesson in, you've got questions, God has answers, as you see up on the screen and on the front cover of the notes that you received. Let me remind you of some things that are coming up on the back cover of those notes. If you turn it over, you see some things listed. And the next item coming up is a week from Saturday, and that's our Enchanted Trails children's event. We encourage you to, uh, if you have children, certainly to bring them. And if you have friends, family who have children, uh, we have stations with uh, folks dressed up as Disney characters. And uh, they always do an amazing, amazing job with that. And the kids and families uh, love it. So if you've never been, I encourage you to uh, check that out. It's free. And you see that it's on the 27th, Saturday the 27th from 5 to 7 that evening. And for that, those of you who are members of our church, we need still need bunches of candy for that. There's a bin out in the foyer uh, next to the information center. So if you can bring in a donation of bags of candy, that would be very helpful for us. And then the other item I want to point out to you on the back there is November the 11th, our next baptism. If you've never been baptized, then that's something that Jesus commands of all of those who claim to be his followers. It's an evidence that we are his followers, that we're willing to publicly identify with his death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. Now, when I use the word baptism, you may have heard the word baptism used uh, of something other than a symbol for death and burial and resurrection. That is, you may have heard it used of something other than being immersed in uh, water. But the word baptism means that, to dip or to immerse And the only way baptism was ever done in your Bible was by immersion. And if you don't do immersion, then you spoil the symbolism of uh, baptism, which, as I say, is of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So when you hear the word baptism, if you say, I was baptized, but I was baptized perhaps as a a baby or even as a, 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 a teen or an adult, and you were not immersed, you were sprinkled with water or something like that, uh, that's not baptism as the Bible describes it. So you wouldn't be getting re-baptized. You would actually be getting baptized in the biblical sense for the first time. So it's not a rejection of who did it or what church you had it done in. It's not about that. It's about what baptism is and what it symbolizes. It's very important. If that's never happened with you, November the 11th may be a time for that to occur, but we need to uh, talk to you about that. And to get that process started, we have a one-page sheet. uh, It's an application for baptism. You pick that up at the information center desk. You fill that out. You turn that into them. They get it to me. I'll contact you, and we'll go from there. November the 11th is our next baptism. All right, this series is You've Got Questions and God Has Answers. And we are posing and seeking to answer eight questions as part of this series. We've covered two. Today is the third of those eight. The first two were how do we know God exists? And then last week we had a guest speaker, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati of Creation Ministries International, and he helped us answering the question, is the Bible consistent with science? Today, page one of your notes, the question is, is the Bible reliable? Next week, why does God allow suffering? The following week, is Jesus the only way to God? Can anyone know for sure he's going to heaven? Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? And the last one is, isn't the church a man-made 
institution. So we'll talk about all eight of those kind of common questions that people ask about Christianity today. Top of page one, is the Bible reliable? In our day, we say at the top there, feeling is believing. Thomas Huxley, the biologist friend of Charles Darwin, wrote in 1890 that he visualized the day when, quote, faith would be separated from fact and faith would go on triumphantly forever. Of course, he and his friends must have considered such faith a joke, since it then would be up to each individual to choose whatever faith was right for him or her. As long as no one asked whether a belief was true, there could be as many different faiths as there are people in the world. So what Huxley was saying there is uh, the facts do not point to belief in God. And Darwin and science are separating uh, the facts from supposed supposed evidence for for God. And therefore, faith and fact are going to have to be separated. But when they are, people of faith are just going to go on anyway, because in his mind, faith, belief is not based on fact to begin with. He's wrong about that. But nonetheless, that's what that's what he believed. And his day, second paragraph is here. Listen to the talk shows, read the editorials, Get caught up on the best-selling books on religion and philosophy, and you'll be struck by the startling realization that the spirituality of our day has been divorced from facts. One can believe whatever he likes, no matter how contradictory or absurd. Every point of view, since it arises from one's feelings, is just as valid as another. Faith is indeed going on triumphantly forever, at least for many. Not Christianity, but that's the way many approach faith and, and spirituality. So you'll often hear people talk today, and when they give their view about something, they say, I feel that, right? Don't you hear that? I feel. I just encourage you to try to stop doing that if that's your habit. Because truth is not based on how we feel. Truth is based upon fact. Truth is based upon objective uh, fact. And so state your opinion, whatever it is, about whatever it is. But it's not based upon your feeling. It's based upon and then support it with whatever facts you can marshal for the position you have. Third paragraph there. Back in the 19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville, a French commentator, came to America, and even then he observed that for some Americans, the goal was, he said, quote, to seek by themselves and then in themselves for the only reason for things. And then what follows there, I don't know how that happened, but it got cut off. So let me read for you what that's supposed to say. It's supposed to say uh, that they seek by themselves and in themselves for the only reason for things. So each man is narrowly shut up in himself. And from that basis makes the pretension to judge the world. And this is all the more true today. Therefore, whatever a person feels is the truth becomes the truth for him or her. That's what we have today. Uh, Without a basis for truth, then truth is your truth. You ever hear people say that now? That's my truth. I'm telling you my my truth. And so you've got your personal truth and I've got my personal truth is the idea. Truth is subjective, not objective. Today, almost no one asks whether a belief is true. The question is whether it's meaningful to me. So we have a blizzard of conflicting claims and millions of people have no desire to sort the true from the false, facts from fiction. We've gone from the belief that everyone has a right to his own opinion to the absurd notion that every opinion is equally right. You all see that? So the difference then is pluralism versus relativism. Pluralism means there 
in our country, there's a plur- there are a plurality of ideas. We have the freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And so you have the legal right to express whatever opinion you want. We live in a pluralistic society. What's happened is people have made the leap from that, from, from pluralism to relativism. Not only do you have the right to proclaim whatever opinion you want, all opinions then are equally valid. That's relativism, and that is certainly not not Christianity. That comes from, in a pluralistic society, the need for civility and tolerance. If people are going to, in the marketplace of ideas, be able to uh, give their ideas, however absurd they might be, however wrong they might be, if everybody has the right to do that, and they do, then there has to be, on the part of all of us, some level of civility, some level of tolerance. But what happens with that civility and tolerance, which is a good thing, plurality is a, uh, pluralism is a good thing, because it, it helps those of us who have truth to be able to give our ideas in the marketplace as well. So it's a good thing, but what happens is that civility and that tolerance then in the minds of many people become, it doesn't really matter which of these is true. And in fact, uh, and in fact, uh, all of them are equally true. That's relativism. But when the Bible, that next paragraph, middle of page one, which is rooted in the soil of history and logic, is either rejected or reinterpreted to fit any belief, everyone is on his own to guess at the answer for ultimate questions. Since there is no umpire or judge, various belief system, umpire to judge various belief systems, the game of life is played with every participant creating his own rules. Friends, without a foundation of truth, everyone makes up their own truth. So in turn now, Francis Schaeffer, the late and great Christian theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer, was right in the words of his magnum opus uh, book, a volume called this. He asked the question, how shall we then live? So how are we supposed to live if there is no objective truth? And if there is no source of objective truth, now now what do we do? Well, he wrote that. He wrote, how shall we then live in the late 70s? And here we are in 2018. And how are we going to live? And what is going to be the end game of what's what's tolerated and what's possible in a society that has no has rejected truth. You see that we have redefined millennia old terms just in the last few years. Not centuries old terms, millennia. And we, in one fell swoop, were able to redefine something like marriage, for example. You can redefine what... And, and, of course, that follows that you can do that if there is no objective basis for truth. But you can mark my words. We're going to see some prophecy from the Bible that is predicting things that are going to happen in the future before they happen. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work at a nonprofit organization, okay? <laughs> but, but let me make this prophecy for you. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Because once you, once you reject truth, now anything goes. Okay. So we have then the need to understand Scripture. 
God's communication to us, God's revelation to us is a foundation for truth. So we need to know what that is, how it's come to us, and whether indeed it's reliable. And that's what we're answering today. So middle of page one, the process of creating scripture. Now you have in your hand 18 pages. We're not going to cover all 18 pages. Uh, but I do want you to know at least something about the process by which the Bible came to us because many people have misconceptions about that. Uh, and I want to focus on some of the excellencies of the Bible that point to its uniqueness. The process of creating Scripture. The New Testament word for Scripture is a Greek word, graphe. We get graphite, graffiti from it, writing. The means that God used to put his revelation in writing, Scripture, is called inspiration. It's based on a famous passage in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So this thing that we call inspiration, very quickly, what it is not and and what it is. What it is not is simply a high level of human achievement. Some believe the Bible to be as inspired in the same way as Homer's Odyssey, Muhammad's Koran, or Dante's Divine Comedy, or Shakespeare's Hamlet. They believe that, like those men, the writers of Scripture simply had a high level of genius. Yet they conclude that they, what they wrote contains errors and cannot be taken as true. So according to this view, the Bible was not written by God, but by men, but by man only, humans only. But consider, would smart men write a book that condemned them? Would smart men write a book that places salvation beyond their own ability? Could even smart men create a personality such as Jesus Christ, who was the perfect manifestation of purity, love, and righteousness? It is the tendency of man to exalt himself, not write books to damn himself. And so 2 Peter 1.21 explains that Scripture, in fact, never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just that these were ingenious kind of people who put this together. And if they were just ingenious people putting it together, would they write what they wrote about themselves and about humanity? Secondly, biblical inspiration is not limited to the thoughts of the writer. It's uh, the words of Scripture. And down at the bottom of page two, it's not dependent on the reader, not dependent on the reader. Some teach that only the portions of Scripture that speak to you are the, are the Word of God. And that is a, uh, what's called a postmodern way of thinking about, about reading. You get this existential inspiration. These folks believe that the Bible becomes the Word of God when it has an effect upon the individual. And so you have lots of people today taking that kind of, it's called post Postmodern interpretation. If you take a college literature uh, class today, you will get exposed to postmodern approaches to interpretation of literature, and it's very much what it means what it means to you. So, meaning in words is divorced now from an objective authorial intent. That is from the intention of the person who authored it. And if it's divor- if the meaning is divorced from that, now the person who's reading it can assign whatever meaning he or she wants to it. It's a very dangerous thing because as you, as you read something, uh, 
if you if you don't ground the meaning in something objective, that something should be what the the author intended to convey. That's what we need to do with the Bible. That's what we need to do with all communication, including written communication, but all communication. You know, you should interpret what I'm saying right now in the context of my intent in in saying it. And that's the only way you can get accurately then the the message. If you if you lose that, then you wind up with like our Supreme Court. You have nine people on the Supreme Court, and what separates them is not strictly their political views. We we think that you got you know nine people, and some of those were appointed by Democrat uh, presidents, some by Republican presidents. So you got some Democrats and Republicans, and this is a big political thing. Well, it's not really that. Uh, it's really what the difference is and what divides them is how they view the issue of interpretation. In particular, how you interpret the Constitution. And whether or not authorial intent is what it is you're trying to get at. Or some of you have heard the, the phrase original intent or original meaning. That's what That's what separates them. And you can't come to consensus then on any document, on any communication, if you don't have that touchstone as to how it is you're interpreting it. Top of page three. Inspiration is also not limited to portions of the Bible. Some say the Bible simply contains the word of God. They say if we are to identify what portion is truly a message from God, we must demythologize the Bible, get the myths out of it all the miraculous stuff out of it and all of that. They deny that Christianity is a historically-based religion, therefore conclude that the incarnation, that is God becoming man, the miracles, the ascension, resurrection, may or may not have occurred in history. But notice, if the historical facts are rejected, the Bible will not make any sense. From beginning to end, Scripture presents historical claims. In fact, spiritual truth is always connected to events established in history. The Bible is free of error in all matters that it addresses. Think of it this way. Last week we had Dr. Sarfati here to help us answer the question, is the Bible consistent with science? That is certainly one of the major areas where people say that you have spiritual truth, the Bible contains spiritual truth, but when it comes to historical truth, and certainly scientific truth, there's no particular accuracy to the Bible. Well, Dr. Sarfati made the point of quoting Jesus uh, a number of times last week when Jesus said, uh, if you have not believed me with regard to earthly things, how can I tell you about spiritual things? And, and the point is this, if God has lied to us in the Bible about the stuff you can verify, the things you can observe, history, science. If God's gotten that wrong, why should we ever believe him about the stuff we can't observe? Why should we ever believe him about heaven or hell or, or any of these things, these spiritual matters that you can't observe? If he didn't get the stuff you can observe right, then why would you ever believe him about the things you cannot observe? And the Bible makes no such distinction for itself. What the Bible affirms to be true and claims to be true, whether historical, scientific, or, or spiritual, are all equally true in what it affirms. And then middle of page three, inspiration is not mechanical dictation. God used the personalities, the backgrounds, the giftedness of the 
human writers in order to produce the books that are contained in Scripture. You have 66 books, as we'll see, written by 40 different authors over about a 1,600-year period. And these 40 different authors came from different backgrounds, lived at different times. And God used all of that in order to produce the book that he wanted written. So God didn't just mechanically dictate. If God mechanically dictated, you would expect that all of the books would sound the same. But they don't sound the same. They're quite different. Why? Because they're written by these different guys. They all have one ultimate author, but God diffused the uh, composition of that through 40 human authors. So here's bottom of page three, what inspiration is. A good definition for the inspiration of scripture is this. God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. A key word, that's a very carefully worded statement and a very good statement. Uh, A key word there is the second one, God superintended. God oversaw the process. God providentially moved along the process including the writers and the selection of who they would be. And, and even before they ever put you know, pen to parchment, before they ever did that, God had selected them and gave them the experiences in their lives that he wanted them to have so that they could bring that to bear on the writing. So God was at work superintending all of this even before they actually began the writing process. So it means... That it came from God, bottom of page three. It's God, God breathed. And then page four. All of scripture has come from God. All that is scripture is God breathed. This includes all the writings contained in what's called the canon. That is those books that met the standard of authenticity as from God. Now what standard was used to measure that? The early church was able to recognize the books that came from God if they met the following criteria, apostolic authority, universal acceptance, doctrinal consistency. Now, this this is referring to the New Testament. We'll talk about the Old Testament in just a bit. But there was no issue with the authenticity of the Old Testament for reasons that I'll talk about later. But in the New Testament, the 27 books that comprise your New Testament, this was these were cri- the criteria that were used. Where it was written by an apostle or by an associate of an apostle, uh, did the church universally accept these writings as having come from God? And then is what was written consistent with what had been written in other books? Now, please note this. It's important. The church did not confer authority on the books of the Bible. Rather, it recognized the authority it already had. You all see that? Because there are claims by some that it is the church, mother church, that gave authority. So the church has authority and then the church gave some of its authority to the Bible. That's not the case. In fact, the the Bible is God's word and it has authority over the church. And the church then didn't have authority and did not confer authority to the books. Rather, it recognized the authority those books had. That recognition began very early as the books of the Bible were being written. In your New Testament, 1 Timothy 5.18, the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. The first one is from an Old Testament book, Deuteronomy 25. But the second is from a New Testament book. So here, Luke, so here's a passage from the New Testament just a few years after its writing being called Scripture. 
being equated with Deuteronomy. Likewise, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter identifies the writings of Paul as scripture in the New Testament. Our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Now notice this, as they do the other, you see that word, scriptures. That word scripture is used in scripture as a technical term for the authoritative writings that have come from God. And here you have one apostle, Peter, speaking of the writings of another apostle, Paul, as being part of these authoritative writings that have come from God, the body of scripture. And you had no church to recognize that, to confer that. This is the inherent authority that these writings had having come from God. Now, how did we get them? That's what we have next on page four, the transmission and preservation of the Bible. And I should say, I think I got these notes from Dr. Combs uh, with what follows. So if you like these uh, notes, uh, I'll take credit. And if you don't, blame, blame Dr. Combs, all right? What's transmission and preservation? So we've got 66 books in the Bible. The Old Testament has 39. The New Testament has 27. The Old Testament was written over a a period of of about a 1,000 years. The New Testament, over a period of about 40 years. You have about a 400-year period in between uh, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And so the first book of your Bible, unless Job was written earlier, uh, Moses goes back to uh, the uh, 15th century B.C., The languages used for the Bible, the Old Testament was Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. And the New Testament was written entirely in in Greek. Now, back at the top of page five, why Hebrew? You see the third bullet there because it was the language spoken by Israel. Why Greek under the New Testament? It was the universal language of the ancient world in the days of Jesus and the apostles. The universality of Greek was a result of the conquests of Alexander uh, the Great uh, in the 4th century B.C. So, with that, with the Bible having been translated from Hebrew and Greek, a little bit of Aramaic in the first part of your Bible, that explodes a misunderstanding that I've heard a lot of people have over the years about how the Bible came to us. I've been surprised to learn how many people think that the Bible came to us through a series of translations from one language to another language to another language to another to another to another till finally we get to the invention of English and then we get it in in English. And so what we have, they believe, is an English translation of the Bible that comes at the tail end of a series of translations. And that every time you have one of these translations from one language to another, you're losing something. So if indeed the Bible you have in English is that, then it's virtually hopeless that you would have anything resembling the original, the original writings through this long chain of of translations. But as you see, this is not the case. The English Bible that you have has been translated once. It's translated from Hebrew to English, from Greek to English. Not from into Latin, not into, and then into something else and something else and something else until we finally 
have what we have. So when you hear that from people, please understand, or perhaps you've thought that, that's not the case. Now, there's the writing of the Bible. The printing press was not invented till the 15th century, so the books of the Bible were copied by hand, primarily on papyrus and parchment. You see uh, some things about papyrus and parchment there. Bottom of page 5, the Old Testament, Testament manuscripts before the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then you've got, we'll see briefly what the Dead Sea Scrolls are uh, in a bit. But before the Dead Sea Scrolls, before 1947 and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had knowledge of about 3,000 Old Testament manuscripts, but none of them were older than the 9th century A.D. Now just stop and think about that. So before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've got, you've got no manuscripts of the Old Testament that are older than the 9th century A.D., none of them older than the 800s uh, A.D. Um, so the, well removed from the time of the events that they describe and the people who actually wrote those events, people like Moses and, and David and Isaiah and, and so on. But that was the oldest manuscripts that we had. Now, here were some of the manuscripts that we have, top of page 6. You see a list of them there. But then number two, it's not too surprising that we had no very old manuscripts since the normal wear and tear from constant usage would hasten the normal deterioration of common writing materials. Palestine suffered wars, invasions, deliberate destruction even of biblical manuscripts. And Jehoiakim and Antiochus uh, were part of that uh, destruction. Another reason we had no older manuscripts or copies is because Jewish rabbis disposed of worn out manuscripts by burying them. Uh, in a, a storage chamber. But then you have the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And some of you know the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but you've got a, uh, uh, a shepherd boy uh, herding his sheep near the Dead Sea, and one of his sheep gets away, and he goes after the sheep, and the sheep goes into a cave. And he's trying to fish the sheep out of the, out of the cave. And, he, and so he throws a rock into the cave, hoping to scare the sheep to come back out. But when he throws this rock in, he hears some pottery break. And so he goes in there and he finds these these clay pots in there that have got these manuscripts in them. And you should Google the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls after he found them. He didn't know what they were. But he came and he brought them home and you know, they didn't know what they were. And then they were sold to people and they went all over the place till. You know, we finally, we finally get these things in 19, 1947, but notice the scrolls that were found in 1947 have Hebrew manuscripts going back to 250 BC. So you're over a thousand years older than anything we had before that. Now that would be a good test case, would it not? To find out if these things we've been using that are 900 AD are similar to or just alike, these things that are dated 250 B.C. So what follows is a number of the manuscripts uh, that were found and some of uh, what has happened with them. Look at the bottom of page 6, though. Bottom of page 6, last uh, three sentences. The total of the fragmentary documents discovered is about 800 documents. The total number of biblical manuscripts is 202, or about one quarter of the 800 they have a very close agreement with the later Hebrew 
manuscripts. Uh, the most famous and largest of those scrolls is the Isaiah scroll. And if you compare the Isaiah scroll to what we've had for all of these years, even in much uh, newer, much more recent uh, manuscripts, 900 A.D., if you compare them, even though they're about a 1,000 years apart, they're uh, virtually identical. So it shows you the amazing accuracy of the Old Testament. And that's why I said to you earlier, when it came to what the what books should go into the Old Testament and the accuracy of the Old Testament, there was no issue with that. Because, top of page 7, Jewish scribes took great pains to carefully copy the Old Testament so that errors would not creep in. You see these nine things that they did there. But look at number 5. No word or letter was to be written from memory. The new copy was to be revised within 30 days of completion. A scroll was to be rejected that had more than three errors on any single sheet. All right. The whole scroll. You got to start over on any single sheet. Every word and letter was counted. So if you have a Hebrew Bible, I have a Hebrew Bible in my office. And you'll have the book in uh, in Hebrew. And instead of being written from left to right, it's written from right to left. And then when you get to the end of the book, you'll find a bunch of calculations, a bunch of numbers. And that's the calculation for the number of letters, and words, and so on that are part of that part of that book. That's how careful they were. And then number nine, special rules govern the form of the letters and the spaces between them. So by the time you have Jesus and the apostles then, 2,000 years ago, you have the have had the completed Old Testament for 400 years at that point. And you have these copies, but they've been copied this way with this kind of accuracy. And that's why then Jesus and the apostles can testify to their absolute uh, accuracy. Both Jesus and the apostles quoted the Old Testament, and he never indicated any doubts about what had been preserved. Luke 24 Jesus said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are three divisions of the 39 books of the Old Testament. They are still the three division Jews uh, to this day in in Judaism for for the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings, or sometimes called the Psalms. The Hebrew Bible that I have on the front cover has three Hebrew words on the front cover. Uh, again, from right to left. Uh, but it's uh, Torah and Nabi'im and Ketubim. Those three words. And it's these three words here that Jesus spoke. Torah law, Nabi'im, uh, the prophets, and then the Ketubim, the, the writings. So these books are part of those three categories or divisions. And then Jesus said in Matthew 23... You, my detractors, the religious leaders, are guilty of the blood of all the prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. It identifies the particular Zechariah it's talking about, not the one, the prophet Zechariah, uh, who, who we have a, a book of the Old Testament named after. It's a different Zechariah. His death is recorded in Second Chronicles. Abel's death is recorded in Genesis. In the Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament books, the first book is the same as ours, Genesis. The last book is not the same of ours. Our arrangement has Malachi. Theirs has Second Chronicles. 
same books arranged differently. That's the arrangement Jesus had. And in effect, Jesus is saying, you're guilty of the blood of all the prophets from the beginning to the end. So here's Jesus confirming the parameters of the books that are actually part of the the Old Testament. So this demonstrates that God had seen to it that the Bible was accurately preserved from the time of Moses, a period of 1,500 years. Then you've got the New Testament manuscripts. Today there are 5,700 catalog New Testament manuscripts. Some are fragments. Range in date from A.D. 100 to the year 1500. 118 are written on papyrus. The rest are on parchment. And the New Testament documents are amazingly reliable. Top of page 8. If you compare... The accuracy of the New Testament uh, documents, you see how many of them we have compared to other historical documents that people accept as completely valid. But you see how many copies you have on the far right there of Herodotus, eight, Thucydides, eight, Plato, seven, Demosthenes, 200, Caesar's. 10, so you've got, but down at the bottom, the New Testament, 5,700. And the accuracy between them is 99%. So uh, the accuracy of the New Testament is, is absolutely amazing. Now, because these manuscripts were copied by hand, errors did occasionally slip in, but these are generally discovered by comparing those manuscripts very easily to see how a copyist made an error. And here are some examples of that from Revelation chapter 20, and it tells you why the King James used the word God instead of instead of throne. Bottom of page 8, the differences between manuscripts that remain today are generally very minor and in no case affect any doctrine. All right. So that's how the Bible came to us. It's accurate. Can it be relied upon? Absolutely can be relied upon. God has superintended the process of giving us the Bible and preserving the Bible. And then within the Bible, you have prophecy that could only be done and given if the Bible came from God. And there's some archaeological discoveries as well that point to the excellencies of the Bible. Top of page 9. Prophecy or pre-written history. One mark of divine revelation is fulfilled prophecy. In the scriptures, God has pre-written the events of history with absolute precision. Such accuracy demands a divine authorship because only God could have foreseen and recorded events before they occurred. So this is essentially an argument based on the omniscience that God knows everything of God. The Bible is the product of one who knows everything. The Bible alone gives us history and detail before it happens. Now you see the footnote there. Some might say, well, wait a minute, what about Nostradamus? So you can, you can go to How Stuff Works, Nostradamus, and I encourage you to read that. And what it'll tell you there is Nostradamus made his name by giving you general uh, predictions that then future events could be fit into. You see, that's fairly easy to do. If you don't do details, you can fit later stuff into it. Uh, if you read your horoscope, which you shouldn't, because astrology is not real, okay? Uh, but people who read their horoscope, the reason horoscopes get hook people is because they're general. You read, you know, your day before you go to work, and you read, you are going to meet someone interesting today. 
And then you're on your way to work. And because you were messing around with your horoscope, you're late. And so you're speeding and you get pulled over by a cop and you're frustrated. Now I'm going to be late for work and all of that. And the cop comes and, you know, gives you the ticket and you're thinking why this happened. And then it dawns on you. That's an interesting cop. And my horoscope said, I'm going to meet someone interesting today. And so now you're feeling better about having gotten a ticket for speeding and going. See, if you make it general, then you can you can make it work. But God's standard, second paragraph, is absolute accuracy. Deuteronomy 18, God said to Moses, a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord, if what the prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true? It's a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And what is the penalty? It is death. And what would that mean? That would mean that Benny Hinn and all of his friends would be dead. Because they've all made these predictions that didn't come true. They're not prophets of God. Isaiah says a similar thing. Jeremiah says a similar thing. So, You have a number of prophecies that we give you in detail in the pages that follow. Uh, I will encourage you to read those uh, on your own, except I want to point out the one on page 9 regarding Tyre and the prophecy that the prophet Ezekiel gave regarding the city of Tyre. And God pronounced judgment upon the ancient city of Tyre. And he gave very specific details about what would happen in that judgment. That tire would be made barren like the top of a rock. It would be flat like a rock. That tire would be cast into the sea. Well, how does, how does all this happen? And in the pages that follow, it tells you how this happened. Page 10. Middle of page 10. Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, not long after the prophecy given by Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar did exactly what had been predicted. He laid siege against the city. For 13 years, Nebuchadnezzar cut off the flow of supplies into the city. In 537, he finally succeeded in breaking the gates down. During that 13-year siege, the people of Tyre moved all their possessions by ship to an island one-half mile offshore. So Nebuchadnezzar gained no plunder. All right, that's 585 B.C. Later comes along Alexander, Alexander the Great. At age 22, Alexander the Great came... East, conquering the known world and an army of between, with an army of between 30 and 40,000 men. Having defeated the Persians under Darius, Alexander was on the march toward Egypt. Now notice bottom of page 10. Alexander arrived in the Phoenician territory and demanded that the cities open their gates to him. The citizens of Tyre refused, feeling they were secure on their island with their superior fleet. How are you going to get out here to get us? We're out here on an island, you're over there on the mainland, and we're going like this. Now, you can read on and you can check history yourself for something called Alexander's Causeway. Alexander ordered that his men tear down the buildings that were on the mainland and cast them into the sea to create a causeway to the island. And so what God had said about Tyre being cast into the sea came literally, literally true. All right. And then on page 12, you've got Sidon. You've got Egypt. You've got Nineveh on page 13. If you go to page 14, you have biblical prophecy concerning the Messiah. 
And on page 14 and into page 15, you've got 29 things listed there that the first part of your Bible predicted about the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth hundreds of years before they ever happened. So how do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? This was predicted, and that includes page 15. And one of my one of my favorite predictions, prophetic predictions in the Bible, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It's listed for you there in the middle of page 15. Quickly, what Daniel says is this. You read it there in verse 24, 70 sevens are decreed for your people. Seventy sevens. Now, it goes on to explain later on page 15 that those 70 periods of seven are 70 periods of seven years. You can do the math. That's 490 years. There are 490 particular special years decreed for your people. And those years are calculated up until the time that the Messiah, the one to come, still to come hundreds of years later, we know as Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He will be, Daniel uses the word cut off. He will be killed. And so there's a beginning point for these 490 years. And then there's a terminal point at the Messiah being cut off. Which as you'll read there, you calculate it goes to the time that Jesus was actually crucified. Hundreds of years before it ever happened. And that accounts... For 483 of those 490 years. 483. And there's seven left over. Anybody know what the Bible says about that extra seven? There's a period coming in the future called the tribulation period. That the Bible says will last seven years. So here's Daniel giving you the whole spectrum. From the time of the rebuilding of the wall to the time of the Messiah being cut off, and then this additional seven years that the Bible calls the tribulation. Then lastly, on pages 16 through 18, the stones cry out, page 16, archaeology in the Bible. And again, I encourage you to read that because you will see the archaeological discoveries that all point to the accuracy of the Bible. The Bible speaks of places, of geography. This has been ridiculed. By historians over the years, we don't know who the Hittites were, for example. And then archaeologists find the Hittites and evidence of the Hittites at the time that the Bible says that they existed. And so one has said, with every spade of dirt that is turned over, the Bible's accuracy is further confirmed. And that's precisely the case. So I encourage you to read that. Is the Bible reliable? Absolutely and more. We will look at why God allows suffering next week. Let's pray. Ask God God to go with us, okay? Father, thank you for today and the opportunity to gather around your truth, around your word, and then, Lord, to explore in this hour these truths about your word and the excellencies that you have embedded within Scripture. Lord, it it has all of the evidences as being divine. It's from you, and you have uh, authored it ultimately. And you have superintended providentially uh, the instruments, the people that you used uh, to produce it. 
And then you have guarded its preservation and you've given it to us in in our language. And so, Lord, we thank you for this because we have then your guidebook for life. We have your communication to us in all of its inerrancy and all of its authority uh, uh, in all of its accuracy. And so, Lord, help us then to love it and to love it as we love you because it's your word and help us to live it. Go with us this week as we seek to live it out. We ask you to grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.